As I said earlier, we, are, uh, we started a new series last week based on the life story of Abraham. And as I was um, particularly looking at this chapter and this, the message for this morning, I thought really very appropriate, not only for high school graduates, but really for all of us, because it touches on an area in which um, I think all of us have been touched in our life, and that is making choices and the cost of compromising our values and the things that we believe. And this morning we're um, looking, going to be looking at the 12th chapter of Genesis and the last portion of the chapter, beginning with verse 10. But let me ask you this quick question quick first. Um, have you ever noticed that sometimes smart people do some very stupid things? Uh, someone made the statement, uh, when hard times come, we always have two choices. We can be a student or we can be a victim. And a moment's thought will show, you, show us the wisdom of those words. A victim says, uh, why did this happen to me? A student says, what can I learn from this? A victim complains that they're being treated unfairly. A student thanks God because they don't really get what they deserve. A victim tries to get even with those who have hurt them. A student seeks ways to serve others in the midst of their difficulty. A victim believes the game of life is stacked against them. A student believes that God is at work, even in the worst of situations. See, the prospective reader can think of a hundred other um, comparisons, but the point is clear. In every circumstance, each of us has the opportunity to choose how we will respond. Sometimes we will foolishly make the wrong choice and will pay a price for our mistake. Well, something like that is about to happen to Abraham. In Genesis 12, it tells us that he reacts when a sudden famine hits the promised land. Faced with this crisis, he makes a series of bad choices that jeopardize everything that he has gained up to this point. Acting out of fear, he places his wife, Sarah, in a morally compromised situation. And in the end, God rescues him, but not before he is thoroughly humiliated in the eyes of the unbelievers who live around him. So from Abraham's story today, I would like to offer uh, some contemporary lessons regarding foolish choices and the providence of God. And here's the first one. Trouble often follows blessing in order that God may test our motives. Trouble often follows blessing in order that God may test our motives. Look at verse 10. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down to Egypt where he lived as a foreigner. Now, Abraham had left his hometown a place uh, for a new place where God called him to go, but now trouble is following him. Please note two facts. God sent a famine just as Abraham was beginning to settle down in this new land where God had promised him and his descendants as an inheritance. Famines often occurred in Bible times. They still occur in parts of our world today. The fact of a famine in and of itself was not unusual, but the timing of this famine is meant to catch our attention. After all, Abraham uh, has been through um, a lot, and uh, you would think that God would give him a period of peace and quiet, but life rarely happens like that for any of us. God often sends difficulties into our lives following a period of prosperity so that he can test our motives. Are we serving him just because things are going well in our life? 
But what if we lose our job? What if our marriage kind of breaks up? What if our, we lose our friends or our reputation or our wealth or our home or our health? Uh, will we still serve God in the same way then? That, by the way, is the question that Satan poses to God regarding his servant Job. And you can read all about it in the Old Testament book of Job. Um, there's, Job was this man who was blessed by God. Uh, he was wealthy, he was powerful, he had a great family. He had it all, and Satan comes along and he accuses God of having rigged the game. And he says to God, you have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosperous in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. But everything that happens to Job is sent as a test to prove whether or not Satan was right. So let me ask again the question, uh, why do you serve God? Why are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you ever really thought about that? Is it because things are going well for you in your life and it's just easy to do? But when life tumbles in, what then? When your spouse walks out the door, when you're given the diagnosis of cancer, when your child is picked up by the police, uh, when your boss tells you that your job is on the line, how do you think of God when things in your life are not going so well? You see, Job passed the test because his motives were pure and because his heart was fixed on God, not on his circumstances. And I want you to notice one other thing in this story. Our text says that Abraham went down to Egypt, and that's more than a geographical reference. Egypt in the Bible represents the way of the world. Going to Egypt meant that he was leaving the promised land. He was going for the wicked ways of paganism. And again and again, the people of God fled to Egypt in the Old Testament for protection, but it always cost them dearly in the end. Abraham is a case in point. So trouble often follows blessing in our life in order that God can test our motives. Secondly, God's people often respond to danger with clever deception. Look at verses 11 through 13. As he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarai, look, you are a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say that this is his wife. Let's kill him. Then we can have her. So please tell them you are my sister. Then, you, then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. Now, it's important for us to understand that much of what Abraham says here is true. In the first place, Sarah was very beautiful. Second, the Egyptians thought nothing of killing a husband in order to add another woman to their harems. Third, and this is where the story gets a little tricky, Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. They shared the same father but had different mothers. So in a sense, Abraham could justify himself by saying uh, that he just told a half-truth. <laughs> but a half-truth is a whole lie. And it's going to get Abraham in a whole lot of trouble. Fourth, Abraham was certainly correct in assuming that he would be treated well and his life would be spared. Now, in all of this, Abraham represents the ordinary person in the world, people like us, who in surveying their assets and liabilities decide to shade the truth a little bit in order to just get by. He was willing to lie just a little bit in order to save his own skin. Now, surely we can understand that kind of reasoning. It made sense on a purely human level. As long as we leave God out of the picture, what Abraham does seems wrong, but it's not particularly sinful. It's a man saying that what he has to say in order to save his own neck. 
And some of us have done that. But that, of course, is the whole problem. Abraham leaves God out. It's interesting to compare the two halves of this chapter in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. In the first half, God is the reason for everything Abraham does. God calls, Abraham leaves his native country. God promises, he travels to the promised land. God speaks and he builds an altar and worships God. But where's God in the last half of this chapter? Abraham journeys to Egypt all on his own. He concocts this scheme on his own. He gets rich on his own. He leaves God out. And when we leave God out, it's always a mistake. By the way, how do you think Sarah felt about all of this? His deception meant that she would now become part of Pharaoh's harem. Here's a man who was willing to sacrifice his wife's purity in order to save his own skin. Not only that, he was interfering in God's plan to bless the world by giving them a child together. Abraham is willing to risk everything that God has promised to save his own neck. Now, please don't miss the larger point here. What Abraham did probably didn't seem very wrong to him. It was just a little white lie. Surely God would understand. But underneath this entire story is the fundamental problem that Abraham was unwilling to trust God in the moment of personal crisis. Because he refused to wait on God, he devised a scheme to get himself out of trouble. And that scheme just got him deeper in trouble. Now remember the word uh, of God in Numbers chapter 32 in the Old Testament. It says this, if you fail to keep your word, then you will have sinned against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. And these words from the New Testament book of Galatians, don't be misled, you cannot mock the justice of God. This is the immutable law of the harvest. What we sow in this life is what we will reap later. But Abraham hasn't figured that out yet. At first, his plans to deceive seem to work. So often, uh, trouble follows blessing in order so God can test our motives. And then God's people often respond to danger with clever deception. But here's the third point. God sometimes allows our deception to gain us a temporary advantage. Look at verses 14 through 16. And sure enough, when Abraham arrived in Egypt, everyone noticed Sarah's beauty. When the palace officials saw her, uh, they sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king, and Sarah was taken to his palace. Then Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her, sheep, goats, cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Now you kind of can write over the, the series of verses, so far, so good. Everything seems to be working out as Abraham planned. The Egyptians, who had a pretty good eye for such things, quickly noticed Sarah's beauty, and evidently she was very beautiful because she was taken into Pharaoh's own palace, and that meant she was chosen as one of the select women who would be part of his personal harem. This had several advantages. First, Sarah would be treated well, she would be cared for, she would have the best food, the finest wine, the most expensive clothing, jewelry, perfumes. But second, Abraham received a rather large dowry from Pharaoh. Lots of animals, lots of servants, simply added to his already great wealth, so he comes out of this smelling like a rose. Now, in fact, it appears that either God didn't notice Abraham's little deception, or maybe God decided to overlook it, or perhaps God actually approved of it, but in any case, who's gonna sit around you know, and do some picky moral analysis here? Surely all of this prosperity proved that Abraham was right, 
when he lied about his wife. Now, before we go on, let me just illustrate an important point. We shouldn't be surprised if our deceptive plans seem to prosper initially. After all, sin is fun, at least for a season. If sin weren't fun, or if it wasn't temporarily rewarding, we wouldn't do it. But the Bible says, the fleeting, it talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin in Hebrews 11, and, and uh, we know what that is. If we read the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, we discover that when this young man left home for the far country, he prospered for a while. As long as he had money, he was living on easy street, and for many months, it seemed as if his plan was a success. Every night he went out on the town, he spent money like it would never run out. You know, the guys all loved him, the women flocked to him, he was the center of attention wherever he went. Life for him was one big party and he was the guest of honor. However, we dare not miss the lesson here. Sin brings plenty of short-term rewards. And if that's what you're going for right now, you might as well enjoy it because that's all you're gonna get. Sin only works as if there's no tomorrow, but tomorrow always comes sooner or later. And that leads us to the fourth point. God disciplines his disobedient children by humiliating them in front of unbelievers. Look at verses 17 through 20. But the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and accused him sharply. What have you done to me, he demanded. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and get out of here. Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them, and he sent Abram out of the country along with his wife and all of his possessions. See, for the first time in this story, God shows up. Up until now, Abram, Abraham has been riding the crest of a wave created by his own clever plans. Perhaps he even thought that God was pleased with what he had done, but he's in now for a rude awakening. When the Bible says that God sent serious diseases on Pharaoh, it actually uses the word that can be translated plagues, or the word elsewhere is used to talk about painful physical ailments. And we aren't told what these diseases are, but I think there's a hint in the text. I find it fascinating that in verse 17, it says the Lord sent these diseases because of Sarah. And then the next verse says that Pharaoh uh, somehow connected the disease with Sarah and figured out the whole thing, but the question is, who told him? How did he know that? Here's my theory. Since God wanted to protect Sarah, I think it, he sent some kind of disease to Pharaoh that would have prevented any immoral act with Sarah. And it's even possible that he sent it intermittently so that whenever he called uh, Sarah from his harem, he became violently ill. That would have tipped him off that there was something strange happening here. And then if he asked Sarah, she would have been forced to tell him the truth or jeopardize her own life. Now what follows is one of the most humiliating episodes in Abraham's life. He's now going, God is now going to use a pagan leader to punish his servant. Now think about that for a moment. Abraham is the one man that God chose from all the people in the world to be the father of the nation of Israel, God's people. But because of Abraham's disobedience, he is now humiliated by a pagan leader. Twice Pharaoh asks, why? Why Abraham? And Abraham has no answer. What could he say? I lied to you know, save my own skin? I lied because I was afraid to trust God in a moment of crisis? 
I lied even though it meant sacrificing my wife to another man? See, Abraham lied because he decided that he couldn't wait for God to bail him out. He lied because he thought it was the easy way out. Once again, we see that the way of sinful behavior is difficult, and the easy way of deception ends up being the hard road to humiliation. So off Abraham goes toward the promised land. He's going back to where he used to be, back to the land he should have never left in the first place. But his head's a little more bowed, his shoulders slumped, and never has any man been so thoroughly humbled by the hand of God. I sometimes wonder when I think about this story what Sarah might have said to Abraham on that long trek across the desert. You ever think about that? I don't think he ever he got any sympathy from her at all. In fact, maybe Sarah, you know, gave him the silent treatment all the way across the desert. That may have been more like it. Not a word during those days of crossing the desert back to Canaan. She probably didn't need to say anything and her silence spoke louder than words. See, everything Abraham gained in Egypt cost him later. Because he had amassed more wealth when he got back to Canaan, he and his nephew Lot had to separate. Uh, the wealth that they had gained caused, uh, caused them to have too much to be in the same area together. And Lot ch chooses a place that's the most immoral city on the planet, a place called Sodom to locate, which causes all kinds of problems. We're going to get to that story in a few weeks. And among the servant girls that came from Egypt is a servant by the name of uh, Hagar, who will be the source of much heartache and pain to Abraham and Sarah. We'll get to that story uh, in, a, in a week or two as well. Uh, but there's a lesson here, and that is that there are no benefits to disobeying God. There are none. Then here's the last uh, point. Though it may seem painful at the time, discipline is meant to save us from our own stupidity and to bring us to the place where we're going to trust God and God alone. I don't imagine that Abraham often told the story about his days in Egypt to anybody. Most of us would have a way of forgetting those painful failures. <clears throat> but we always learn more from defeat than we do from victory. And that, I think, explains why this story's in the Bible. It teaches us some important lessons about our own spiritual life. First, we see the danger in compromise. What seems so innocent almost cost Abraham everything. Compromise generally starts with a small step in the wrong direction, followed by another step and then another step. Pretty soon, we're off the trail. And it's easier sometimes just to continue in that direction than to turn around. Secondly, we see the deceitfulness of sin. No one ever gets away with sin in God's kingdom. Though the wheels of God's justice grind slowly, they grind with, perf with perfect precision. God doesn't miss a thing. All the devil's app apples do have worms in them. Every sin seems fun and reasonable and justified at the moment, but in the end, we are the ones who pay a heavy price. Third, think of how the circumstances in this story line up. Who sent the famine? Well, it was God. Who sent the plague to Pharaoh? God did. Who stepped out uh, to protect Sarah's purity at just the right moment? Who caused Abraham to be humiliated so that he would return to the land of Canaan? It was all God's doing. And as far as we know, God never speaks directly to Abraham, and yet he is the unseen hand moving behind all of these events. 
Whatever else we can say about life, don't ever forget that God is in charge of every detail, even the tiniest details. Nothing escapes his notice, and even the most unlikely events are part of God's plan for us. Then finally, this passage teaches us something about the grace of God. That may seem strange because this story ends with Abraham's humiliation. But where does that humiliation lead? It leads him back to the promised land where he should have been all, of long, all long. I like the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119. My suffering was good for me, but it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. How many people can say that through God's judgment on sin, that we have learned how great the grace of God is in forgiveness and reconciliation? So what does it mean for, uh, to be a Christian? What difference does Jesus make once we become once he becomes our Lord and Savior. And here's an answer that may surprise you. When Jesus becomes Lord of our life, you know, we can still sin, but I guarantee you, you won't enjoy it like you used to. You can still sin, and you can enjoy it for a while, but you won't enjoy it forever because God will not let his children enjoy the pleasures of sin indefinitely. Sooner or later, God always steps back in to bring his wandering sons and daughters back home. And that's what happened to Abraham. It's the grace of God that intervenes to bring him back to where he used to, where he uh, was before he messed up everything. And as Abraham slowly trudges across the hot sand, he is aware that his reputation has been ruined forever in Egypt. No doubt his servants are laughing behind his back and it's gonna be a long time before he ever lives down this humiliating event. But if you look closely, there's a new contentment in his eyes as well. Egypt is behind him. He's going back home, back to the promised land, back to God, back to where he belongs, back to um, where the grace of God will be at work in his life. Just as every coin has a head and a tail, so every event in our lives either draws us closer to God or it leads us away from God. If Abraham had stayed in Canaan during the famine, he would have learned how to trust God in a brand new way. If he hadn't lied to the Egyptians, he would have given God a chance to meet his needs without resorting to that kind of deception. But because he didn't do those things, and that same famine led him away from God, how much better it would be if we'd learned that lesson instead of complaining at every trial that we face in life and say, why me? we would be better off to say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me through all of this? Every difficult situation in our life gives us the opportunity to either become a student of God's grace or a helpless, hapless victim of negative circumstances. When the famines of life come, and they will, remember that God has not abandoned you. He allows the times of struggle to come into our life to see if we're willing to trust him even in the most difficult moments. We should say, here's another opportunity for me to trust God. I wonder, I wonder what wonderful things God has in store for me this time. It's not easy to say that. Sometimes it takes more grace to stay in the promised land than it does to get there in the first place. But God never intended the Christian life to be an easy life. If it were, none of us would ever grow spiritually, but he arranges the steps in our life so that as we climb higher, we also grow stronger. And in the end, we'll discover the blessing that God reserves for those who keep on climbing. So may you know the presence of God in your life today as God moves in your life 
uh, to grow you into a stronger disciple for Jesus Christ.